I'm Christina Campbell, and you're listening to Edupalooza Talks, a special podcast from Break Free Education. We're proud to share this podcast series as a component of our Break Free Edupalooza, an online professional development conference for educators in juvenile justice facilities across the country. In this podcast, we're joined by David Domenici, Executive Director of Break Free Education and longtime juvenile justice and education advocate. David is here to talk about the many different people that play a role in a young person finding success in the classroom, and more specifically classrooms within juvenile facilities. David had a lot of great things to share about different players such as teachers, leaders like principals and agency directors, policymakers, parents, and even ordinary community members who can contribute to making sure students held in confinement get the education they need and deserve. David, thanks so much for joining me today as a part of our interview series for Edupalooza. We like to begin these podcasts by getting to know our guests a little bit. So I'm going to ask first up, why did you end up in education in the juvenile justice field? I know me personally, I was lucky enough to meet you back in 2010 when you were the principal of the Maya Angelou Academy at New Beginnings, formerly Oak Hill, the long-term facility in D.C. Could you just take us through and share a little bit about how you ended up doing this work? Will do. Hey, it's great to be here for our first podcast. I, I really hope I do well here. So, okay. I did a lot of work uh, after college and in law school working with kids growing up in D.C. and some other cities as a volunteer. We had started a program called D.C. Works, and it was a volunteer-based program working with kids going to inner-city schools who needed a boost. And that was a good thing, and we did some good work together. I then spent one summer working at the Public Defender Service in D.C., and when I was working at the Public Defender Service, I was working with an attorney who had juvenile clients. And in that experience, I started to meet sort of another group of students, I don't like to class students like this, but that were not going to school, were not going to get into a program like DC Works where they needed a good summer program and a boost to help them get to a fair place. They were not going to school, they were getting arrested, they were kicking out. School was a place where they were not successful. And that got me just sort of thinking about this space and got me thinking more and more about young people who were getting in and out of the juvenile justice system and not being successful in school. That stuck with me. I went on and practiced law for a little bit. At some point, I worked for Marion Barry for a while. And in the midst of all that, I thought it would make sense to try to do something. So I started a pizza delivery restaurant. And all the people working with me primarily were kids coming out of the youth facility here in D.C. Mm-hmm. And ran this little part-time job training, tutoring, who knows what program with a handful of kids. I worked there most of the time and worked as a lawyer a little bit to pay the bills. And I met James Foreman Jr. And he took a leave of absence from the Public Defender Service. And we said, let's give it a go and try to create an alternative school really for kids who were either in the system or just not succeeding. There's a few more steps along the way, but that's basically, you know, a few years after that, you and I met, I was out at Oak Hill. Vinny had asked us to come out there and try to start a good school to help reform Oak Hill. And we started the Maya Angelou Academy out there. That's the, that's the shortcut. That's great. Thanks, David. Thanks for sharing. So for this interview, 
I thought we could kind of focus on the different players that kind of contribute to a student's success in the classroom. There's so many players. We think typically of the teacher and the student who are in the classroom, but I think it kind of goes beyond that. So I thought maybe we could chat about some of those other players in addition to our teachers uh, and discuss kind of your experience and seeing how students find success in the classroom based on so many other people contributing to setting them up for that. Sounds great. Sounds great. So first let's, let's go with our teachers, you know, they're the ones in the classroom. So what does it take to teach and work and thrive in a juvenile facility school? Is there something in particular that you think makes teachers just really, really good? It takes a lot, but the truth is the absolute number one ingredient is you have to have this unyielding belief that every single student who enters the classroom deserves your best that no matter what, he's your child, he's our child. And if you care for him, you look at him and see him as fully human and fully deserving of your best, you're gonna do great things. You're gonna be an excellent teacher. That's the, the number one ingredient. There are some other unique things. You do have to be tough. You have to have be very empathic, but you also have to be tough and have thick skin. You have to, you just can't take no for an answer. People are going to tell you, you can't try that in this classroom because, well, because there's no good reason. You just can't because no one did it before. And you have to ask questions and push. You can't use computers. Yes, you can. You can't use scissors. Yes, you can. You can't have students get out of their desk and come to the smart board. Yes, you can. You can't put them in small groups because they'll fight. All these things you have to be willing to say that doesn't make sense. We can create a culture in this classroom that is a safe place, a place based on trust, a peaceful place. And that that then sets the tone for you to really work with kids and help them trust you, get engaged, and find meaning in, in what they do. You know, you have to steal yourself every day knowing that some things are going to go wrong. There's going to be interruptions. New kid's going to come today. Some kid you just started to really get your arms around and get some traction with leaves out in the middle of week two, and you're saddened by that. Kids don't come to school someday because something happened the night before, and you had a really great lesson planned. And of course, you're kind of upset because you had worked hard to do that. But you have to deal with all that and nonetheless show up each day saying, hey, this is going to be the best educational experience of my kids' lives today in my classroom. Let's see one more thing on this. I, I think, you know, the average kid who ends up in a juvenile facility has not been successful in school. They've been primarily failed by and failed at school. And when you, you have such a unique chance in this space because you are the person that can reverse that course. A young person can have success in your classroom, in your school, and that success starts to translate. In our country for teenagers, the high school is the place. You succeed in high school, you can move forward. You fail in high school, the path just is totally different. And so you have this unique chance as a teacher to help a young person who's been failed by and not enjoyed school to find success in school. 
there's a lot more here about actual teacher strategies and focusing on engagement and relevance and a lot of that stuff. But I think we'll let one of our teacher trainers get into that. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember like one of the things I walked away working at my Angelou having learned was just how unique the experience or the opportunity really was. You have these students, they're, they're there, you know, and you, you can't let go of that opportunity when they walk into that classroom because they're present and, and you right. can do something with it. So I know that you, David, focus quite a bit on the role of leaders and leadership in this space. Maybe you can share some examples of the type of difference leaders can make um, when it comes to making students held in confinement get the education they need and deserve. Good leadership makes all the difference. Good leadership pushes good policy. Good leadership attracts other good people to come into their building. Good leadership takes risks and supports creative people. So it's, it's just incredibly powerful what good leaders can do in the space. But to give you some examples, down in New Orleans, Henderson Lewis is the superintendent of schools down there. Henderson, at Travis Hill School, we have multiple graduations a year because small number, two or three students graduate at a time at all different times throughout the year. Henderson Lewis has been the superintendent the entire time we've operated the school in New Orleans. And he has come to, I believe, every single graduation, either in person or as we've done them remote. He speaks at every graduation. He knows every graduate's name and he talks to them with respect and care and love. He knows what they do. He listens to the teachers when they talk about them. He acknowledges their families and their challenges and praises them for helping to get their young person to where they are. Henderson Lewis is just incredibly attuned to this. When we have challenges in one of the facilities, for example, if young people are being held in segregated housing units and not getting access to school and we work hard to to get things moving and we just can't get it done. Henderson Lewis is, comes, he comes to the facility. He meets with leadership. He makes it clear that these young people have rights. Their access to school is protected by the constitution. He personally is there to help make that happen. And it's just incredibly empowering. Henderson Lewis makes sure that his team is working with the city council and other sort of stakeholders at the government level to make sure that there's adequate funding so that we can do our job with these young people. And simply put, this just isn't the case for most superintendents of urban cities across the country. I live in DC. My Angelou is at the post adjudication facility. But for years and years, the pretrial juvenile detention center here has been operated by the local school district, and I'm not aware of any of the superintendents of the District of Columbia attending graduations, coming in and meeting directly with young people, ensuring that you know access to school is a priority for the leadership of the custodial care agencies. It's just a dramatic difference what someone like that can do. I'd like to be working in the future to find a way to get every superintendent of a major urban center to see kids in confinement the way Henderson Lewis does. There is a juvenile detention center in every major city in America. And there are a lot of really good people that try to do good work inside of them, but it's leaders that can help really make it happen. So that's an example of at sort of a big picture level of what leadership can do. Right. I'll give you one other example. When we got started out at Oak Hill, my Angela Vinnie Shiraldi was the director of the agency. And 
In the long sorted history of Oak Hill, there was a specialized unit, Unit 10A, the throwaway unit, where they put young people that either were having behavioral challenges or they just didn't want to deal with. Those young people didn't get to come to school. They got a little bit of tutoring, which really means they got to play cards and stuff for an hour to a day, but they were just confined to their cells all day long. They ate in that unit. They had a little basketball court in the back. It was horrific. Then he told me that on the first day of school, everybody in the facility was going to come to school, including the students on 10A. Right. And I agree. And we were psyched. But the staff just thought this was nuts because they were sure that the students on 10A were just going to tear the school apart and run, you know, run amok and do the whole thing. And Vinny just doesn't care about that sort of stuff. The notion of a throwaway unit or a segregated unit just struck him as so wrong that he just decided we're going to do this. We put a lot of work into that, making that successful. And it you know, wasn't perfect and it didn't wasn't perfect every day. But the fact that on the very first day that Maya Angelou showed up, the kids from 10A marched down through the yard or whatever you call it and came into a classroom and were successful just sent such a signal to them and to everybody else that worked there that it just laid the groundwork for us just to like do good and work hard together for a long time coming. As you know, I would do anything for Vinny. And, uh, but that was it. That was the beginning of it. That's just, that's just what a good leader does. Every kid gets to come to school every day. Yeah. Six months later, we clo- he closed that unit, thank God. But mm. for six months, we got everybody to school. Yeah. Ooh, goosebumps over here. <laughs> wow. That's a leader that is inspiring for his staff, you know, but like you just said, it meant something to the students too and showed them that they're valued, which then they get to carry on with them. So we've talked about teachers, we've talked about our leaders, and a lot of what we do at Break Free is focused on supporting principals and teachers. But while we're doing that work, there are policymakers. So what are some of the main policy issues that you think need to be addressed that would ensure students held in confinement get a good education? How much time do we have, Christina? We have three another... <laughs> Let's, we're just going to focus on a couple here because I know we don't have all that much time. Let's focus on two. One, there still are a lot of young people in youth facilities around the country who don't get credit for the work they do. And that happens for a couple of reasons. They go to schools that aren't schools. They go to schools that are run by organizations that aren't affiliated with an LEA. And they are like nonprofits that run programs. And in fact, coding, many of the uh, schools and detention centers around the country are coded as like education programs, not schools and like the state classification system. That means they get less funding. That means they aren't held accountable. Their teachers certification requirements are less. Kids don't have to go to school for a full six hours. And what the kids do may or may not get counted as high school credits when they leave. And this is just tragic and is so incredibly wrong. I'm baffled that it can still exist. So that's a state level decision. All these schools have to be schools. None of them can be programs. They have to be held accountable, just like other schools with some varying sets of accountability measures. They have to be able to issue credits. And on the other side of the house, principals and school districts don't have any option. This young person comes from this school to your school, you accept their progress to date, and you give them credit for all the work they have completed to date. 
just like if I moved from Washington, D.C. to Milwaukee and moved my 11th grade students in the middle of the year, they would not be told, oh, you got to do 11th grade all over again, or you have to do this quarter all over again. They would accept their progress today. They would accept their grades and they would progress. That's the biggest problem for kids. The other really big, big policy issue we should tackle is that there are lots of 18 to 21 year olds who are held in adult jails, adult detention centers. All of those 18 to 21 year olds who have IEPs by federal law are entitled to the services that they deserve and very few of them get them. And people just seem to ignore this stuff. There's not a school, kids don't get the education they're entitled to and everybody seems to know they're breaking the law and nothing happens. But even for the 18 to 21 year olds who don't have an IEP in almost all states, as you know, we did this research together, up to the age of 20, 21, or 22 in most states, you are eligible to get your high school diploma as compared to your GED, meaning some LEA can capture full FTE funding to educate you. And so every jail in the country should have a high school, like there is now. My Angel is running one here in the district, and Travis Hill is running one in DC, and Five Keys runs one in Los Angeles and Chicago Public Schools does a good job and District 79 does in New York, but they're not everywhere and they should be. And again, this should just be sort of, you run an adult jail, 18 to 21 year olds have a high school, they can get their diploma. If it makes sense, they can transition towards a GED and young people who have special needs get their special needs met. Yeah. It should happen. The only reason it doesn't is adults in power don't prioritize this. Mm -hmm. Two good policy moves for the future. So I also heard you talk about parents and kind of how parents have a tendency to kind of throw up their arms, maybe once their child is locked up, assuming that they don't have the power to do much other than maybe just hope and pray for the best. But what what do you say to that? What can parents do to make sure their students get educated even while they're incarcerated and related? What can and should schools and juvenile facilities be doing to engage those parents? Let's do the second part of the question first, because I think that opens the door for more parent engagements. But what should schools be doing? They should be doing all the things that every other good high school does in the country. They should have back to school nights. They should have parent nights. They should make sure they send progress reports home and they should send report cards home. And if they have challenges around restrictions because of COVID or if parents live far away, we've learned a lot over the last couple of years. And you can do parent-teacher conferences with Zoom. You can have back-to-school nights with Zoom. You should host graduations and get the families there. And if only the parents permitted in the facility, then put it on Zoom and invite the whole crew of kids and grandparents to join in. I mean, all these things matter. Schools should do a lot more. Schools should have students' progress should be available, just like I can log in right now and see how my high school students are doing. I can see their homework assignments. I can see their grades. I can communicate directly with their teachers. There are schools and youth facilities somewhere that do that, but most don't. They say something around privacy or just it's just nonsense. They, They should do these things and parents would then have access. If I had my way, schools would send, and any time a child doesn't get to come to school, they would send a note to the parent saying, by the way, do you know your child missed school today? They missed school today because there weren't enough security guards. They missed school today because the math teacher didn't show up, <laughs> because there was a fight last night and two kids, and they decided 62 students can't come to school today. This stuff. So this is what the school side of the house should be doing. And if they started to do some of this, then it would make it a lot easier for parents to do what we want parents to do. 
Because what we want parents to do is we want parents to inquire and to not take no for an answer, to say, I want to see my student's schedule. My kid was in 11th grade when they went here and he wants to graduate. I want to make sure that he's in the appropriate classes. Can you send me his class schedule? Or more so, I think I've heard you guys use the student information system that the whole school district does. I log in to see my sixth grade students' grades. Give me the login code so I can log in how Marcus is doing. The only reason the school doesn't give you access to Marcus's stuff is because the teachers aren't teaching Marcus and they're not putting grades in. They don't want to be embarrassed by having parents log in and see nothing's going on. <laughs> so, so parents, you know, we need to encourage them. It's, it's hard because your kid does. They get picked up. You get called in. And, and most of the communication with parents initially is through like the detention side of the house. So we need to get educators in that initial conversation with parents. And then we need parents to to just, not, again, not look at this as this sort of impenetrable wall, which it kind of is, right? And say, I'm going to get through that. I'm going to find a liaison. Mm-hmm. I'm going to expect my student to go to school every day. I'm going to expect to get progress reports. I'm excited to go to the parent conference night. And if that isn't happening, um, I don't know what to say, except they just have to get get loud and get mean and really make, you know, really make some noise. Right, right. Shake it up. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we're talking about players. We've talked about teachers, talked about leaders, policymakers, parents. The last group, subgroup that I want to chat about is regular people. We at Break Free turn to lots of community members to volunteer. We have hundreds of them who write letters as part of our care mail letter writing program or volunteers that offer great feedback to students on their poetry through our Words Unlocked Poetry Initiative. What else can kind of the average community member do? This this can seem daunting too, but let's start at the first step. First, let's not underestimate the power of that care mail letter. It's an amazing thing, I believe, for a young person held in confinement to get a letter addressed to them from a complete stranger, letting them know that someone out there cares about them, that they acknowledge their humanity. Maybe they share a little bit about their, what's going on at home, the last movie they saw, their name of their pet, whatever the heck. And they ask a little bit of the young person, just share a little bit about what's going on in their life. It's very powerful. And my belief about the work we do together, Christina, and and we do is, you know, every act counts yeah um it's our individual and the collective day-to-day acts of kindness and like goodness that move the needle and move us towards something called justice and that's why it matters to write that letter i truly believe yeah what else can people do well as I said a little while ago, every city in America that has more than 50, 75,000 people in it has a juvenile detention center. Every one of those juvenile detention centers ostensibly has a school. Some are quite great. There's some incredible teachers in there. Some are not so good. But you can find out where that facility is. You can go knock on the door and you can tell them that you want to tutor after school. You can tell them that you'd like to teach a music class because you know how to play the saxophone or the drums or who knows what. You can say that 
you like to knit and maybe there's some kids who'd like to learn how to knit and sort of help them calm down a little bit or you know how to break dance. What the hell? Who knows? But <laughs> students need to know they're cared for. And the more we can get people with a range of talent and creativity into their lives, the more they start to see possibilities for their future, the more this term of confinement, which generally speaking is not healthy for young people, can become there's little nuggets of goodness in there. They get to play a little music. They get to do some creative writing. They get to work with someone who recognizes that they maybe can barely read and gives them confidence to read comfortably with them without a lot of people around. These are just really, really big steps for young people who, again, mostly experience failure in schools. So that might not work right away. We've tried this before, but if someone tries that and they get getting turned down, you should just keep trying. And then if you can't find that place, honestly, you should send us a note. We can get you to someone in any detention center in America and try to help that person not just slam the door on you. So that's that's another way that just sort of regular folk can make stuff happen. Other ways, regular people, if you're involved, if you're the sort of person who spends your time trying to influence the local school board and how they make funding decisions, you can have an awareness like, hey, what's going on at the school in the detention center? Is, are they do they get the same funding as everybody else if you're that sort of person where you're involved in like school policy and school policy in your district just note down like what's going on with the school and the detention center and see whether you can help raise that up in discussions when it's often left out it's true most local school superintendents have a lot on their plate and unless someone helps you or unless you happen to be henderson lewis it's unlikely that you're going to prioritize that this school for 40, 50 kids, many of whom have done something wrong enough to get them locked up, is going to be your priority. But it needs to at least be on your radar. It needs to be one of a lot of priorities. It should not just simply not be on the list. So that's another example of sort of this in-between. If you don't want to be a tutor, but you want to affect, if you believe public education should work broadly in your city, bring up these kids in this site every time you're involved in a discussion. But I wanna give one other example. I know we're running out of time. You know, individuals can do amazing things. I received a call a few months ago. I think I've mentioned this to you. I got just this totally random call from a woman in Chicago. Her son was close friends with a teenager who got arrested, spent time at York School at the Cook County Adult Jail because he was charged as an adult. That young person then got a short sentence to the Department of Corrections. He was close to graduating, I think only two or three credits shy. But when he went to the DOC to prison, he couldn't continue to work on his high school diploma. So his time was just downtime. He then returned to Chicago. He didn't have a high school to go to. He didn't have a transition support plan. He was, I think, 18 or 19 and a few credits shy of graduating, which is a really in any city, but in Chicago right now, this is a really precarious place to be. You're just 18 and you don't have a high school diploma. You're basically unemployable and there's no place for you to go. He got shot and killed. And Stacy, this is not Stacy's child. This is Stacy's child's friend. Stacy just couldn't take this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she started working with the principal of the school there, Charnette Sims, a good friend of mine who's a really incredible leader, and kind of crafted this idea about let's think about a pilot project where young people who leave York and get sentenced 
if they're close to graduating, they can stay on York's rolls and they can finish school using remote instruction while they're in the care of the DOC serving a short-term sentence. And although this hasn't gone into effect yet, there is a bill that we wrote and the bill just went through committee today. And this is really just because of one person, a few people, Charnette Sims, an incredible principal, and, and, and Stacy, who doesn't even have a kid in the system, but just thought the system was really nuts. And she just didn't take no for an answer. And so, so here we are, we have, we have a lot of work to do, but I think this is gonna happen and it's gonna be a really great thing. One person. Yeah, wow, it's incredible. And it really can be one person and it can really just be any person, you know, anybody who, who cares. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, David, so much for answering my questions. It's not every day that, you know, you get to sit down with your boss and uh, and interview them. So <laughs> this was fun. And thanks for kicking off our Edupalooza podcast series. We like to close off this podcast by asking our guests two questions. The first one is just whether or not you have a podcast or a website or newsletter book or two um, that you really enjoy or have enjoyed recently that you want to recommend to anybody that's listening. And it can be something work-related or something that you just, you know, enjoyed personally. Well, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot of books, but I would recommend Krista Tippett's On Being. Mm. It is a, uh, just a beautiful, beautiful podcast. She's wonderful. She's interviews people from Jason Reynolds to Thich Nhat Hanh to, I don't know, uh, Laylee Longshoulder to all, all sorts of people. And mm-hmm. it's refreshing. It's helps you get grounded, <laughs> gives you some sustenance and some reason to keep persevering on. It's really beautiful. So that I would recommend on being with Krista Tippett, if anybody wants to try that out, what to read. Um, hey, read anything by Jasmine Ward, right? Yeah. Uh, we read Sing Unburied Sing, Salvage the Bones, read her, read that piece she wrote in Vanity Fair, that tragic piece about Oof, her yes. passing. So they're chilling, they're beautiful, they're they're filled with a lot of things that I think about when I think about the South and I think about African Americans and I think about race. So that's I'd read anything by Jasmine Ward. There we go. Yeah, very thought-provoking work. She's wonderful. Okay. Last question is just that we want to close out with any advice. So I'm wondering if there's any advice or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with other educators who might be listening into this podcast. Advice. I've mentioned this a little bit, but to the educators out there or for the new educators out there, the most important thing is when you start to work in a youth facility and someone says, this is the policy, don't believe them. They're None of what they say is policy, is policy. What it is, it is practices that adults have developed over time that um, serve their needs, but don't necessarily serve the needs of the young people who we are counting on them to care for and nourish. And this just happens everywhere. You know, you've heard these examples the facility I, I used to go to for a while, we were trying to help them. Every morning, every kid who had a, an appointment with the nurse's station at one time got marched down to the nurse's station and stayed there until they got seen. So there'd be 13 kids in the nursing station and maybe 15 kids in school. And then 
And they stayed there all day until they got to the nurse's station. And you ask questions like, why do we do this? That's the policy. There's no written policy on this. It's just totally inane. And no one would do this in a regular school. And no one would do this to their own student. Miss hours and hours of instruction to sit in the nurse's station. So, you know, that's an example. Why can't the two girls go to class with the boys as compared to having to spend their entire day in a class with just two girls? That's the policy. No, there's no policy. It's people don't want to do the work of what it takes to help young people in that environment be successful in a mixed gender classroom. So I would I would question anything that has a suggestion of policy. I would really look at askance and, well, just ask a lot of questions. And, and like we said before, don't take no for an answer. For a quote, I wrote one down. I got one. We have been reading with people, with some of our principals and our principal leadership network, some Brene Brown, and she has this beautiful quote about teachers that maybe we should close on. What do you think about that? That sounds great, David. All right. This is from Brene. This is not me. As I often tell teachers, some of our most important leaders, we can't always ask our students to take off the armor at home or even on their way to school because their emotional and physical safety may require self-protection. What we can do and what we are ethically called to do is create a space in our schools and classrooms where all students can walk in and for that day or hour, take off the crushing weight of their armor, hang it on a rack and open up their heart to truly being seen. Beautiful, David. Well, there, there's our ending. Thank you so much. Thank you, Christina. A huge thank you to David and to you listeners for joining us today for this short podcast as a part of our Edupalooza conference. We're grateful for all the educators out there doing the incredible work of making school happen inside juvenile justice facilities, and especially during challenging times. Thank you for listening to Edupalooza Talks, a break-free education podcast. Music for this podcast was written and produced by students at the J.C. Montgomery School, located inside Kings County Juvenile Detention Center in Central California, as a part of Unsung, Break Free Education's annual songwriting initiative for students held in confinement. Edgepalooza Talks podcast is produced by our friend and colleague, Christine Anjoko. I'm trying to show the fam I got them, don't know how to live. I'm really trying to do my best, I guess it ain't enough. I don't know who to trust, more hope and broken up. I'm trying to keep a smile up, but I've been feeling numb. Better tell me, gotta watch who I be riding with. I didn't listen, now I'm back up in the fire pit. They put me in this cage, and they expecting change. But it only made me worse, and y'all the ones to blame. I gotta take a second, I gotta catch a there. Cause I be sitting 192, and it isn't fair. Would you come and switch positions? No, you wouldn't dare. It's crazy how they got my life, and I'm just in a chair. Life could change at any moment, and I'm well aware. These emotions building up and you just can't compare They got me like an institution in the devil's lair I'm just glad I got my brother with me every tear Feeling my, feeling my, feeling